Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change and supply chain disruptions, urbanization and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. Since their independence from the Soviet Union, the Central Asian countries, namely Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, have maintained close ties with Moscow. However, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has complicated their relationship. None of the Central Asian countries have expressed support for Russia's war and are all abiding by the Western sanctions imposed on Moscow. While economic ties between the region and Russia remain strong as of now, Central Asian countries are looking to diversify their economic relations, thus opening up avenues for other powers. In this episode of Interpreting India, we discuss Central Asia and the Russia-Ukraine war. Specifically, how are the Central Asian countries responding to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? What could Russia's, Russia's preoccupation with the war in Ukraine mean for China's role in the region? And what are the implications of this on India and South Asia? Joining us today to discuss this topic is Jennifer Brick Murtazashwili. She is a non-resident scholar in the Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She is also the founding director of the Center for Governance and Markets and a professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Her research focuses on issues of self-governance, security, political economy, and the public sector reform in, in the developing world. Her book, Informal Order and the State in Afghanistan, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Jen, welcome to Interpreting India. It's a real pleasure to be here today. So it's been a year since the war in Ukraine started. If I could start by asking you about how the Central Asian countries have responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine over the past year, especially given that even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia has maintained significant economic, political and cultural influence in the region. Uh, the war really has had a tremendous impact on the region economically, but also in terms of its own perception of itself. And I think what this war is doing is finally putting an end to the idea that Central Asia is a post-Soviet space. So, so often we refer to these five republics as post-Soviet Central Asia, right? And I imagine in India, the, the rhetoric is the same as in the United States, this description of these five republics. And what keeps these five republics together uh, in our minds is the fact that they were once part of the Soviet Union. So this Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of course, makes countries, those five countries in particular, quite acute of Russia's influence. Of course, they have always been aware of that influence and always been wary of that influence. It's a double-edged sword, however. You know, for Kazakhstan, for example, Russia, Russia and Kazakhstan share a tremendous border trade. Labor migration from Central Asia all goes to Russia. So they're very economically dependent upon one another. But Russia has also treated Central Asian states as if they are part of their near abroad, part of their own you know, internal empire. And I don't think many of the countries, any of the countries in Central Asia have really enjoyed you know, being this little brother to Moscow. They are now independent and sovereign states. So I think more than anything, 
This war has made all of these countries acutely aware of the need to disrupt this relationship. But doing so is not easy. And it is not as if Russia will disappear from the landscape. I know, you know, in the United States, we hear, oh, you know, the Central Asian states will now turn to the United States or they're turned to the West. Well, that's not realistic. These are these are countries that share borders, share deep historical ties, economic ties, and so forth. I think it's a question of balancing those relationships and sort of right-sizing them. Right. And if I could turn to sort of Russia's role as a security guarantor. So just a month before the war in Ukraine began, the Russia-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO, deployed for the first time in, in its 30-year history um, to protect the Kazakh government led by President Tokayev. Um, this sort of re- reaffirmed the idea of Russia being a security guarantor in Central Asia. But has Moscow's preoccupation with the war in Ukraine altered this? Absolutely. I think it has really shifted people's perceptions of this. And uh, Central Asia shows us why. So when Russia, uh, when Kazakhstan actually called for CSTO troops to come into Kazakhstan to deal with a domestic political dispute, I was quite shocked and alarmed. And I said, you know, quite publicly that I thought Kazakhstan was sort of throwing away its autonomy at, for the price of stability. And the Takayev government was looking for Russia as its guarantor. Uh, you know, having CSTO, which is, of course, more than just Russia, but really Russia leading the security alliance, uh, having Russian troops, the the visuals on that were not good, I think, for Kazakhstani domestic political society. There was a lot of confusion as to what was going on. And we've seen, you know, several months later, the result of that was a denazarbayevification of the Kazakhstani economy. Nur Sultan Nazarbayev was the longtime ruler of Kazakhstan, and uh, Tokayev was his anointed successor. And it looked like the violence that we saw in Kazakhstan was very much a dispute between these two rulers, Russia being called in to adjudicate this in many ways. So one month later, Russia invades Ukraine. And this actually presents an existential threat to Kazakhstan in many ways, because Russia had called Kazakhstan an artificial country, um, had said that the the territory in northern Kazakhstan, where there's many ethnic Russians or had been historically, uh, you know, was almost a part of Russia and not so many words they were saying this. And so there was a lot of concern after Russia's invasion about, I think, a lot of introspection inside of Kazakhstan about what have we done here? Um, And Kazakhstan had been quite strident after Russia's invasion in saying it does not support um, the... uh, the, the occupation of these, uh, the autonomy of the Lugansk and Donetsk people's republics that Russia had called for and really said that they, it believes in the sovereignty of countries. So that was a very strong statement that I don't think Russia quite expected. But what does that mean? You know, your, your broader question is Russia as a security guarantor. I think all of the countries in the region were watching Russia's military performance in Ukraine and I think like many observers in the United States were quite surprised because we recall these predictions that the Russian troops would, uh, you know, take Kiev in three or four days and that would be it. We saw how Russia really struggled. Well, 
when the United States left Afghanistan uh, just a year and a half ago, I reminded people that there, there's no security vacuum in, in the region. The countries, neighboring countries all have their own militaries. And Russia has about 10,000 troops stationed in Tajikistan on the Tajik-Afghan border. So it's not as if all foreign troops are leaving the region. And in fact, the Russians have these troops on that border for many reasons, but one reason is to protect their border with its near abroad, because Russia fears terrorism, narco-trafficking, all of these other spillovers that it fears coming from Afghanistan into Russia through Central Asia. So who's looking at this? China. China is watching the performance of Russia in Ukraine. And what is China's primary concern vis-a-vis Central Asia? Well, we hear a lot about BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, and trade and all of these things. But I think it's their primary concern is security. Well, Russia has 10,000 troops stationed in Tajikistan. So for a long time, even you know the, the, the Americans had a significant military force in Afghanistan, this was actually always in China's interests until the United States proved that it couldn't maintain security and stability in Afghanistan. And as Afghanistan became more insecure, it became much more in the interests of China to find alternative solutions. So China looks at Russia's presence as a good thing because it is providing the bulwark of security against potential incursions into China. Now, recall that what part of China is so close to Afghanistan? That is Xinjiang. That is the area of the Uyghurs. That is an area that obviously China has directed a lot of attention and is committing a genocide because of it, it is afraid of Uyghur militants. So uh, China is watching Russia's military performance. Central Asia is watching Russia's military performance. And there's a lot of questions about those 10,000 troops that are stationed on that border. Are those troops there? No one actually really knows the answer to that question. And then how will they perform if there's conflict? So that invasion and Russia's performance has completely changed Central Asia's attitude towards Russia as a security guarantor. And as a consequence of that, We are now seeing China take a much more active role in security issues in Central Asia because they do not believe that Russia really has the chops to handle what may come out of Afghanistan. It's a long answer. Right. So you mentioned that the CSU military deployment would not have been perceived by the Kazakh public as a good sign. Um, And interestingly, President Tokayev has also adopted a more neutral approach to the war in Ukraine. You mentioned that they haven't uh, recognized the Donetsk and Luhansk republics. Um, And you also mentioned that Kazakhstan has a long border with Russia and a sizable Russian ethnic minority. Uh, Do you feel that there are concerns in Astana that Russia may turn its attention to Kazakhstan after Ukraine? Well, I think that is the great fear that if if, uh, Ukraine, uh, if Russia is successful in Ukraine, who's next? And I mean, Putin has been very clear about who's next. I mean, his his rhetoric about Kazakhstan has been unequivocal. 
that uh, his view of Kazakhstan as an artificial state. And he was making those statements sort of the same time he was making grand statements about Ukraine. They, they came together. So, uh, yeah, I think there is there are real concerns. Uh, but the, the you know, Kazakhstan is doesn't have the support of the West in the same way that Ukraine did. Uh, Ukraine is, is a country in Europe and, and the EU and Europe and the United States have NATO and, and a very strong military alliance. And, and so the issue of Ukraine very much touches on those really core security issues uh, for the United States and for uh, Europe. Kazakhstan doesn't have the same importance. So I think in many ways, Kazakhstan is much more vulnerable uh, to Russian aggression because of the, you know, the, 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 not the lack of interest, but the, the strategic importance of, of Kazakhstan to um, the United States and to Europe. Now, having said that, I don't think China would be particularly pleased if uh, Russia took military action against Kazakhstan. Uh, uh, Kazakhstan is a border, uh, borders China. And uh, so I think China would look sort of askance upon some kind of incursion uh, into Kazakhstan. So I would imagine that uh, those conversations, if it looked like that kind of thing were to happen, China would probably take a much more um, I, I wouldn't say a military stance against it, but a much more aggressive, uh, would have many more aggressive conversations with Russia about that. And that's a very strange situation for Kazakhstan to be in, to see China as a potential security guarantor for it. Um, now, I'm not saying that's not a formal you know, security alliance, but I would imagine that would alarm China. Right. Um, coming to a sort of broader question um, about the Central Asian countries as a whole. Um, so they've been abiding by Western sanctions and just like Kazakhstan, none of the other four countries have also recognized uh, the Donetsk and Rohan's republics or any territory that Russia has claimed to have annexed as its own. Um, how have these actions been perceived in Moscow? So Moscow has viewed this with great suspicion. And I think there is concern, not too much concern, because I think we also have to re remember that the rest of the world isn't giving Central Asia you know, significant attention. This week, Anthony Blinken did visit Central Asia, and there was a very muted response from Moscow. And in many, like Moscow didn't really seem to recognize, I have to check the latest news, but Moscow didn't really seem to recognize or even say much about this visit. I thought that Moscow would say much more or even mock the visit. Uh, some, some commentators, of course, did. Uh, but Central Asian, of, of course, I don't think Russia has been particularly pleased, but uh, we've seen an increased interest of Russia in Central Asia. Um, our, our Carnegie colleague, uh, Timur Umarov, has done some really excellent work looking at Russia's relation with Central Asia. And he noticed that uh, Putin had made like 15 visits or had 15 meetings with leaders of Central Asia since the war in Ukraine. 50. 5-0. That's a lot. So he's concerned about the, the influence of other countries in Central Asia. He understands the strategic importance of it, wants to make sure they don't fall under the, the security umbrellas or economic umbrellas of other regions. 
so uh, there's obvious concern to make sure that these countries stand together, and and that is clearly not happening. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, Kazakhstan I think has done an interesting job of uh, promoting you know pro-Ukrainian rhetoric in, in many ways. It's set up these yurts in uh, throughout uh, Ukraine to show solidarity, uh, provide humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. Obviously, Russia is not very happy with that. Those are very symbolic moves. Um, rather than very substantive moves. But I think that they show, they allow Kazakhstan to sort of play both sides of this in in many ways. Uh, Kazakhstan, obviously, as we've discussed, has real genuine concerns about Russia's behavior, but the economic dependency. uh, Kazakhstan has actually seen a trade boom because of this war. Um, But Russia, uh, Kazakhstan is also concerned about labor, uh, not labor migrants, but uh, the Russian migrants who have come into Kazakhstan um, who are escaping conscription. This could also pose some kind of interesting uh, internal dilemma for Kazakhstan as well. Just to lead off that, what sort of legal status do people coming into Russia have in the Central Asian countries? So I think I think all of the countries are approaching them very differently. And uh, Russians can travel to Central Asia without visas, but their legal status, uh, you know, I think there's in each country, I think it differs in terms of how long they can stay. The only exception to that is Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, who are members of the Eurasian Economic Union. And because Russians are members of the Eurasian Economic Union, they're allowed certain economic rights. And I believe the right to work, um, because that is the same right that is given to Kyrgyz and Kazakhs who go to Russia. Um, And that is why Russia puts a lot of pressure on the other Central Asian republics, Uzbekistan in particular, Tajikistan, to join the Eurasian Economic Union because it accords their workers more rights. And Central Asia, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is the incredible dependency that Central Asian states have on Russia because of labor migration. And there's estimates that upwards of 40% of GDP in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan uh, come from remittances from labor migration to Russia. So Russia has played games in the past with this, putting pressure on Central Asian states, uh, you know, sometimes sending migrants back to show how strong they are and how much they control Central Asian economies. But on the other hand, I think what we're increasingly seeing is a much more confident Central Asia that understands that Russia needs these labor migrants just as much as Central Asia needs the remittances. And this is especially acute if we consider how many men Russia is sending to fight in Ukraine. Central Asians are their importance to that economy are even more abundantly clear. Uh, Russia has a real population problem, a population growth problem, has no people, right? Its population growth is dismal. It it can't uh, sustain its economy based on this. So um, Russia is really, and I think this is becoming very clear, is Russia can't uh, flex that muscle anymore because it is really dependent upon those migrants. Coming to um, where the war in Ukraine leaves Central Asian countries with regard to Russia and China. Um, So you already explained how Russia is very important from an economic standpoint for the countries in Central Asia. And um, but Russia's economy is going to struggle in the future, given the Western sanctions Um, and Moscow's economic influence in, in the region is going to start waning 
um, as a result of this, countries in the region will look to diversify the sources of economic growth if they aren't already. Um, so we've already talked about China as a security guarantor, but what about as a sort of source of economic growth? So it, obviously China's role in, in Central Asia has skyrocketed over the past two decades. Uh, but I think that, and, and if we look at the smaller economies, of, of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, China's, China plays a, a monstrous role in those two economies, um, and particularly in terms of debt. And, you know, we've seen even turnovers and, and uprisings and coups in, in Kyrgyzstan that have been a result of questions about Chinese investment in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and so that there, it's, it's, it's quite a source of contention. Uh, but in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, which are very small countries and very poor countries, this is where Russia and China really are, are, are dominating uh, both economic and political conversations. Important to note that China has a border with both Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. So that is very natural in many respects. You have very, very small countries, mountainous countries, um, not huge populations, not a lot of resources. Uh, China's interests, you know, is trade, um, uh, developing trade routes out of China to, to, to the West, looking westwards, or even looking south. And we should talk about that. Um, so, but in the larger two economies, which, is, uh, which are uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, we're seeing a really interesting dynamic where these countries are really allowing Russia and China to compete for interest. And so one of the things I want your listeners to be aware of is that so often we think of Central Asia as the site of these great games between you know, Russia, great powers, whether that was the UK so long ago or whether it's the United States and Russia during the war in Afghanistan, um, where the US and Russia were actually quite allied. Right. Um, and then it turned into some conversation about U.S. versus China in Central Asia for a few years. And now when the U.S. left Afghanistan, it become the conversation is about Russia versus China in, in Central Asia. And I think what gets lost in this conversation is the real autonomy and confidence that Central Asian states now have. And they understand, as, as I mentioned with this issue of labor migration, that they are not so completely dependent that choices about their foreign policies are not made in Moscow or Beijing. They're made in their own capitals and they, they do have autonomy and they can make choices and they are making important choices. And so they're able to play Russia and China off against one another. Um, we see, you know, different uh, ebbs and flows in terms of investment and who the number one trading partner is in these countries. Uh, COVID actually, you know, had a huge impact on that. Um, you know, China closed itself off for so long. Um, Russia did not. And so Central Asian states looked at that. OK, if, if China is such a great economic superpower, why is this, why is it shut off to the rest of the world? Um, and we're also seeing really interesting confidence when it comes to Afghanistan. And I think this is something that really will affect India in the long term, is that if we look at Uzbekistan in particular, uh, you know, when Afghanistan collapsed, there was a real questions, as I mentioned earlier, about what would happen. And in the media in the United States, where I'm based, we saw 
I heard a lot of talk about uh, the Taliban and ISIS will now invade Central Asia. Are there these huge, there'll be huge refugee outflows from Afghanistan to Central Asia. And that never happened. It never happened at all. The border remained pretty tight. Central Asian countries were able to secure those borders and they had very strong ties with the Taliban. And Uzbekistan is a really interesting case in point, because if the Central Asian states want to diversify their economic and security relations from Russia and economic ties from China, the only logical place for them is to look south. And the southern relations, I think, especially for Uzbekistan, for Tajikistan, um, and even for Kazakhstan, who's pretty allied with, with Uzbekistan in terms of its southern strategy, is to look south and to expand those trade routes. And, and the Uzbek government has been really um, quite strident and creative in its desire to pursue these southern routes. So you remember, um, and I hope your listeners recall during the height of the U.S. involvement in, in Afghanistan, we heard a lot about regional connectivity, TAPI project, right, the Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, uh, CASA, these projects that would bring electricity from Central Asia to South Asia. Well, those projects gained new life for the Central Asians after the U.S. left, because for the first time, it seemed that, that the Central Asian states really hoped that the Taliban would help bring stability. And that stability would be very important to those economic connectivity programs. And that is truly ironic, right? Because it was the United States that was promoting this uh, at, you know, as it was involved in Afghanistan with the hopes that it would stabilize Afghanistan and there would be these trade routes and, and all of this wonderful stuff that was in the interests of Central Asia. But Central Asian states became really, I think, disillusioned with U.S. Uh, because of its poor performance in Afghanistan. And I think that's really something that's important to remember is, you know, Blinken came to Central Asia uh, this past week is Central Asian leaders are looking at the United States and saying, like, look at the way that you left Afghanistan. You may want, you know, your involvement in Ukraine to make us forget that. But those images are very you know, clear in our minds of, of what a disaster that was and how reliable is the United States as a partner and how effective was it. And so for so long, the United States saw these five republics as a, uh, you know, a, an add-on to their Afghanistan policy, now sort of an add-on to their Russia policy, their Ukraine policy, or sort of a appendix to their China policy, rather than as an, an entity unto itself. So, you know, Uzbekistan is, is engaged in very creative diplomacy with the Taliban, trying to promote this regional connectivity, trade routes, trucking routes. Now there was trucks, I think, that came from Central Asia to India. And I think that was the first time that that had happened. And then the Uzbeks are really touting this in their own media. Probably not a big deal in India, but for the Uzbeks, it's a huge deal because they want to diversify their economies away from Russia, but they're in a tough place. It's a double landlocked country with all infrastructure going north and east to Russia and to China. Of course, they don't like that. They don't like that dependence. They want to have choices and they want to be in control of their fate. And if we look south, 
you know, if we didn't have chaos in, in Afghanistan, that would be so such a natural trade round for them. Another place that's really blocked is Iran, right? So Turkmenistan has this huge border with Iran, easy to get things in and out of Iran, but sanctions are another issue there. So, uh, and the Central Asian states are very wary of the Iranian government uh, and the Iranian, you know, what are, what, are, what are Iran's designs for Central Asia? Uh, they've seen Hezbollah. They've seen, you know, how Iran gets involved in countries and there's where, where real wariness. So countries are facing the, the reality of their geography, but doing, I think, a lot very creatively to get around these issues, to develop new ties. They all talk about multi-vectored foreign policies and multi-vectoredness means actually having good relations with all of your neighbors. They're never going to be, you know, in one just camp. I mean, other countries may want them to be, but it's never going to be in their interest just to be a, an, an ally with Russia or China or the United States. And they want these these uh, neighboring countries, regional countries, broader powers to compete for their interest because it's good for them. Right. So I'm just going to tie up a couple of threads that you mentioned over there. So um the Central Asian countries had the regional summit last year um, where Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan signed an agreement on friendship, neighborliness and cooperation for the development of Central Asia in the 21st century. Do you sort of see this as a step towards greater regional cooperation and as you mentioned, and maybe as, as a way for Central Asian countries to better preserve their sovereignty with respect to powerful neighbors like Russia and China? Um, and at the same conference, if I could just add on another question, um, there was discussion about looking at South Asia um, in terms of finding alternative trade routes. So do you think there are any specific op economic opportunities for India in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's real opportunities for India, but the real challenge for India is Afghanistan and Pakistan, as you well know. <laughs> I don't have to tell you. Uh, I think that there's a real interest in Central Asia to develop stronger ties with India. And the, India is viewed so positively in, in, in the region. Uh, Indian culture, Indian music, Indian movies are very, very popular. Um, and there's very you know, strong historic ties that go back centuries that people are very aware of uh, trading and commercial ties and, and um, that go, you know, that predate the Soviet period that people actually point to and look to. But the challenge is, you know, what's between and that promote that, that, that is a very serious obstacle. And that's why you see like the Uzbeks really engaging in Afghanistan, trying to find diplomatic solutions to this, at least if, if Afghanistan can be stable uh, those trade routes could be win-win both for India, who needs natural resources and energy and all of the things that uh, Central Asia uh, has. Um, and Central Asia can really export, um, you know, so many of its agricultural products and other things. And of course, importing things from India would be much easier. Right now, it's, it's very, very hard. Um, so... Now, in terms of the regional integration, I think it's very smart for India uh, to focus on this because India's role in the region has been quite small. Uh, but the regional integration, I think countries in Central Asia now understand that their only way in the near future to protect themselves from these other powers, especially Russia, is through greater regional integration. And this is something that Russia actually does not, does not want. 
Russia prefers the Eurasian Economic Union, prefers the CSTO. I don't think there's much of a future in those organizations in the short term. Uh, those, those organizations are really preserving the old Soviet Union. And I think countries in Central Asia see their futures in very different ways. And they're very, very comfortable, you know, especially Tajikistan and Uzbekistan looking south. And they understand their, um, what opportunities lie there. And it's very interesting. If you talk to people in Afghanistan, they very, they very much view themselves as Central Asians. Uh, and uh, I think the, you know, the Uzbeks and the Tajiks are very comfortable with that, that they see, uh, they share common language, right? Uh, Uzbek is spoken, Tajiki is Dari. It's very, very, you know, they're both Persian. Um, so they see themselves as very interconnected um, culturally, historically, religiously. So, but that issue of regional integration could be a potential bulwark of protection against Russia. So other countries in the region working with the C5 platforms um, can help. I do worry sometimes that there may be fatigue. Uh, President uh, Rahman of Tajikistan made a very uh, funny quip. Um, I think it was in December. There was a, a conference. It was a CSTO conference in, in Dushanbe. And he was sort of, there was this famous video that went viral of him raising his voice at President Putin. And a lot of people saw this as, you know, Tajikistan taking sort of an independent uh, stance against Russia. But it was hardly this. He was actually saying, you know, Russia needs to do more and see us as independent countries and deal with us bilaterally instead of all these you know, C5 plus one platforms or these, so Central Asian states, right, plus India. And he made a joke about, we have India, we have Japan in Central Asia, India in Central Asia, United States in Central Asia, now Russia in Central Asia. Like, when are you going to treat us as independent actors? Um, so there's, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword again, you know, in terms of these things. But I think this is something that Central Asian states um, are increasingly looking at. It's been hard because they often haven't gotten along with one another. There were, you know, the reforms that have happened in Uzbekistan since 2017 have been very, very key to opening doors to regional cooperation because Uzbekistan, it's very important for your listeners to understand this, Uzbekistan shares a border with all five Central Asian countries with Kazakhstan, with Kyrgyzstan, with Tajikistan, with Afghanistan, with Turkmenistan. And when Uzbekistan is closed off to the world, it's really hard to have any kind of regional integration. When Uzbekistan's policy shifted and it became much more open under Mirzioyev, then it became much easier. So that's why we're seeing real increased discussion of regional cooperation now, because the Uzbeks want it. Because the Uzbeks, their economic model has moved away from autarky to one of greater economic engagement with neighbors. So when that changed, possibilities changed. But what that highlights is the real vulnerabilities there are towards regional economic cooperation because it's so dependent on who's in power. And because these countries are not democratic and there's no leaders who are elected democratically with the exception of, of Kyrgyzstan, which we can discuss. There's questions about that as well. Um, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, there's authoritarian stability, but there's a lot of, you know, lack of predictability associated with authoritarianism as well. 
Right. And coming to my final question. So you've already mentioned how um, Central Asian countries have looked to reboot uh, connectivity projects now that the Taliban is back in power in Afghanistan. Um, is there a scope for the Central Asian countries to play a larger role in Afghanistan now that Russia's influence will be limited given their preoccupation with the war in Ukraine? And has there been any change in Central Asian foreign policy towards Afghanistan over the last few years since the U.S. withdrawal? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think I, I mentioned briefly Uzbekistan's interest. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, Turkmenistan is a neutral country and it doesn't get very involved in what goes on. And, and uh, it's, you know, it's a very mysterious country to understand. So we can't really look to them as, as uh, you know, spearheading any kind of economic or diplomatic or any kind of um, initiative in Afghanistan. But if we look at Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, we've seen two very different approaches. So Tajikistan has came out with uh, you know, really tough rhetoric against the Taliban uh, because Tajikistan had been historically associated with the Northern Alliance groups, with the Tajik groups in, in, Af- in Afghanistan, and was very anti-Taliban. But on the other hand, pragmatically had energy deals and electricity export deals with the Taliban. So despite the rhetoric, there was a lot of actual interaction between Tajikistan and um, and uh, the Taliban. But it was Russia. You know, Russia has its troops there. So Russia is really in many ways um, having a big influence on Tajikistan's policy. But you see divergence between Russia, what Russia does and says and what Tajikistan does. So I think this illustrates, again, sort of the confidence that these countries have, even though Russia has military forces ostensibly guarding its border with with Afghanistan. Tajikistan's policy towards Afghanistan is different from that of Russia's. The really interesting one is Uzbekistan, who has been courting the Taliban quite actively for several years. And I think even with the encouragement of the United States, you know, the United States was, it was clear that the U.S. was leaving Afghanistan for many years. And we know that the U.S. was negotiating with the Taliban. So as the U.S. was negotiating with the Taliban, the Uzbeks started negotiating with the Taliban. And um, I think there was a lot of hope from the Uzbeks that with the U.S. withdrawal, the Taliban would moderate that the Taliban would, um, you know, allow minority groups to participate, would allow women to participate. We recall what the Taliban promised, you know, in the op-eds in the New York Times. We're different this time. Well, uh, you know, I think the Uzbeks were hopeful that that would be the case. So the Uzbeks have been very, very active in engaging with them because of, of course, their interest, their, their fear. They have the security concerns. They don't want spillovers. They're worried about ISIS. Um, and ISIS has now been very active in recruiting among the ethnic minorities of Afghanistan, including the Uzbeks and the Tajiks in particular. Uh, but even prior to the collapse, we saw like many people from Tajikistan coming into Afghanistan, joining ISIS and attacking the Afghan Republic. Right. Uh, these ISIS cells were coming from Tajikistan, not, not a lot of them, but enough to cause concern. And they were fighting the Taliban as well. So ISIS is a concern. I don't think they're going away anytime soon. But the primary concern is building these trade routes. And so Uzbekistan has, I think the Uzbeks are carrying out some of the United States 
diplomatic weight, maybe carrying messages for the United States in Afghanistan, trying to promote women's education, gender issues, um, and other uh, more inclusive government. Because Uzbekistan understands that unless the Taliban are more inclusive, they're going to face the same kind of instability that every previous government did that tried to exclude groups. So it's Uzbekistan and I think the other set in Kazakhstan as well see it in their own interest for the Taliban to be more inclusive because that inclusivity will yield stability. And without stability, those economic pipe dreams are never going to happen. So the Uzbeks have been very proud, and I've had conversation with some senior Uzbek government officials who said, look, we've assured that um, Uzbek language instruction has continued in Afghanistan. There was concern about that. There was concern, um, and there were some girls' schools that in the north that remained open. Um, And I think that some of this diplomacy with Uzbekistan really helped in that regard. Now, the, 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 the Taliban walked all of this back. They closed all of the girls' schools um, in December. And uh, I, I think that now there's some reevaluation of that policy towards the Taliban. Where are things going? How stable is the government? Um, what is the relationship between the different factions of the Taliban? Where is this going? Um, and how wise is it to, to try to promote these connectivity issues, which are so important, because if you're a double landlocked country and you've got, you know, 35, 35 million people um, and you're so dependent on Russia and you see how Russia behaves, you want to look south, you want options. And uh, but it's not looking good in Afghanistan right now. Right. On that very somber note, um, thank you, Jen, so much. I really learned a lot from this discussion and I'm sure our viewers have as well. So we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Uh, To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.